0: Hello everyone, this is The Visionary, a podcast brought to you by you, an initiative for students by students. Here we imagine the European Union of the Future, where the priorities of young people and the next generations matter. In every episode, we discuss with academics, policymakers and experts, vision ideas for a better future EU. Welcome to the third uh, episode of The Visionary. I am Cecilia, one of the co-founders of Future You, and today I'm very, very happy to be joined by Katarina Gnat, I'm a senior project manager at the Bertelsmann Stiftung, working on Europe's economy and an expert on European internal market, the Eurozone, and the political economy of economic reforms in the EU. Welcome, Katarina.
1: Thank you very much, Cecilia. Pleasure. I
0: just said that you work for the European economy in but by mentioning a, brief, a policy brief, a consideration that was made by another, another a, a project namely, namely, opinions that just a couple of months ago highlighted how young people, people under the age of 30, tend to be more supportive of the European Union compared to other demographics. And in particular, they tend to They tend to be more favorable towards European intervention on uh, matters that are usually on the agenda of national governments, and are more supportive for deeper European integration. This finding is in line with findings, with studies that have been done over the years. And especially, I found that in 2016, there was a project that you contributed to that found that it was true that millennials were, in general, more supportive of the European Union. However. You could see two distinguished patterns among young Europeans. There were two groups: there were people, young people, that under the age of twenty-five, that did not enter the labor market yet, did not have to face the challenges of the labor market after the two thousand eight crisis, and the older millennials, so the people over the age of twenty-five, that instead entered the labor market in that in those situations, and the had some, let's say, more reservation we of more disillusion? Can you comment on
1: that and why do you think that was the case? We've seen over a long time that the relationship between age and support for the European Union is actually very stable. Young people in Europe have consistently over time been more in favor of European integration. The prime example really has been Brexit where the young vote has been in favor of remaining in the EU. With our Opinion tool, opinions, we see that questions on how positive do you see the EU, how positive do you see European democracy, is consistently higher. Now you've mentioned the difference between the young youth and the sort of older, maybe in the early 20s, young people in Europe. And we did a study in 2016 that was very much under the impact of the euro crisis. And When you look at crises in general, it's young people in the labor market that gets generally hit quite hard or harder than uh, people that have been established in the labor market. That has to do with the fact that young people on average have more fixed term contracts, so it's easier to fire them. This age group in the early and mid-20s is also an age group that is trying to enter the labor market, which generally is more difficult in a crisis so you kind of see a general shift in, in times of crisis of, you can call it a disillusionment. It's also a sort of frustration with the economic outlook and economic situation that might take sort of support for the EU, support for certain political systems uh, a little bit lower. So I think that's the question of how far they're um, from the labor market and how important the labor market is to to their life and their prospects is something that we've seen at least in these post euro crisis studies quite dominant.
0: Thank you. The reason why I brought up that study was that those younger millennials in 2016 are now in the situation of the older millennials. five six, seven years after that study those are people that have entered finding the labor market either right before the onset of the corona crisis or during after two thousand and twenty, so during the Corona crisis, like myself. First of all, do you think that you know see kind of the same the same partner again? So people that were these EU enthusiasts will still be positively supporting the EU, but then will observe an obvious slump in their level of support. And do you think that something is being done about that?
1: What is your opinion? I agree. I think. We These sort of older millennials and the sort of twins, twenties somethings that are now trying to enter the labor market or have just started working will face not the same crisis, because it is a different crisis, but there is a sense of a negative outlook right now. So I assume that, and I haven't seen the data for this um, sort of split, that we will see... Um, the same sort of frustrations and positions towards their personal outlook and their their economic outlook. Mind you, these are averages that have been done for, for age. And it's when you look at sort of country figures, you see actually a broad spread within Europe. And I assume we saw that in the euro crisis because some countries were just much harder hit. And we'll probably see it in the corona crisis too. My doubt that there is a huge difference between the young and the old millennials now comes from the fact that even the younger or the the, the young people, let's say, between the age 15 and 21 or something like that, have experienced the corona crisis, maybe not economically, but they've experienced it as a health crisis, they've experienced it as restrictions to their mobility, they might have experienced it in universities, in schools... So it would be very interesting to see whether you have this split because in a way the young people might be equally affected as the newly sort of working young people. But that is a hypothesis. I haven't seen the results for this, the data for this yet. It's actually very difficult to measure the impact of corona because it is an ongoing pandemic. But my assumption would be that the immediate situation for the young-youngs has also been affected this time around in their daily lives. Something that came to my mind was, what do you think was be, has been done
0: for those, for those youngsters that were entering the labor market after the 2008 crisis? What had been done or would not have been done instead, that instead is being done now? Right between the 2008 crisis and the 2016 study, right, there were a few years during which policies might have been implemented or might not have been implemented that then determined people having great difficulties entering the labor market around I don't know, 2012, 2013, 2014. Do you think that something like that is being replicated now or you know the lessons learned then
1: are being observed? Maybe two quick takes on this. I, the, the first question... One thing is the policies and the initiatives that have been undertaken following the euro crisis that concern labor markets, that concern education, that concern training, retraining. Most of these policies have been conducted at the national level. Um, some countries have managed very well to reduce unemployment, to get out of the euro, of, out of the crises. Generally, unemployment among the young has remained higher than before the crisis, but we see quite a big difference. So some countries, you might say, have learned from this uh, crisis and some countries have been slower, let's say, in, in adapting their labor markets. When you look at macroeconomic policy or economic policy in general, I see a big learning actually from the euro crisis to the to the corona crisis. In the euro crisis, countries were fast in helping stabilizing labor markets, stabilizing the economies, but then sort of pulled out, if you want, too quickly with their support. And when the corona crisis hit, there was quite a swift alignment among European uh, countries to really go in big, both at the national level, but then at the European level, we had these Funding. So that is much more at the macroecon- macroeconomic level, at the general level, that wasn't necessarily targeted to young people, these measures, but it was targeted to the labor market in general. So many countries have introduced some sort of short-term uh, labor, some furlough schemes where people specifically did not lose their job, but were put on a sort of holding schemes so that they could sort of re-enter the labor market. Well, they didn't actually exit the labor market, but they got some compensation for not being able to work, let's say in the tourism sector or something like that. And so that made it easier once this immediate, the first shock of the corona crisis disappeared to sort of get back to good employment levels without this sort of high spike of unemployment that we saw in the first crisis. So my answer of whether something has changed between uh, the Euro crisis and the Corona crisis is yes, definitely on the macroeconomic level, on the labor market level, and the question of structural unemployment of young people, it really depends on the country.
0: Thank you. Because you mentioned it, you said that there was a willingness to go big, right, at the European level. What do we mean by that? And in particular, I'm referring to, uh, in terms of economic measures, they are introduced at the European level. To contrast the consequence of the pandemic, there has been a lot of talking about the next generation EU, the uh, res- recovery and resilience facility. What are they? And why are they such
1: big game changers? Yes, there are big game ch- changes. I would say. First of all, in terms of size, these are unprecedented amounts of money that have been not distributed, these are unprecedented amounts of money that have been um, put forward by the EU level for member states and for their crisis response if you want to the corona crisis, uh, to the pandemic. So size is definitely uh, one difference. What is also different is that quite a lot of the money has been put forward in terms of grants. There is a grant element where you can basically as a country provide a plan of what you want to do with the money, how you want to help your economy, how you want to reform your economy to be more resilient after the crisis. And then you get, you can draw on these grants. Some part of it is loans-based and that we've seen in other crises before. You basically ask for a loan with better conditions. But this grants element is new and what is also new is that the money is genuine EU money. So beforehand we had EU crisis responses where, to put it in simple terms, countries pooled money into a big pot, the European Stability Mechanism, if you want. They, had, they provided guarantees for this money. And then it was sort of redistributed among European countries. Whereas now this is specifically debt that was uh, taken up by the EU level to then distribute to the member states. So in terms of size, in terms of the way how this money is financed, and in terms of this difference between grants and, and credits, uh, I see it as a big change. You mentioned that. You know, this
0: unprecedented amount of funding is also there to support countries to implement reforms to not only, you know, deal with the recovery from the crisis, but also to ensure their economies are uh, strong enough to face future crises.
1: Is there a mechanism to check on that? uh, Or how does that work? These funds that were decided very early in the crisis, in summer 2020, they sort of took on a life of its own in the sense of initially we thought this was was money that would be used for immediate crisis response. By now, when when you look more closely into what the money is being spent on or what countries say that they're going to spend it on, it's much more questions of, we'll use the money, but we want to reform our economies so that they are resilient. And on top of this, and that's sort of the third element that sort of came into this measure um, at maybe at a little bit of a later stage, is that they decided, the European member states decided that they wanted to use this money specifically to master or to, to sort of find a way to support the green and the digital transition so you even have this third element of not just resilience but also this long-term transformation that you wanted to support with the money and so in the end you kind of have three goals if you want whereas the more medium and long-term goals are actually the ones that are much more front and center now because policymakers realize that it will take time to come up with reform plans, distribute the money, and then sort of recoup the effects of the investments. So the more transformative and reform-based approach is is the one that has sort of taken center stage in the funds.
0: How do you see that happening? Do you see then you know, this use of funds for reform to happen in a kind of homogeneous way among member countries or rather that it would exacerbate, you know, the divide between the south, south of Europe and north, or western and east? How do you see that happening? Like now, and especially in the longer term, like for younger generations, how do you see that?
1: First of all, if you look at who gets how much money in absolute terms, but then also in relative terms, depending on their size of the economy, the countries that... Have been hit hardest by the crises, and also the countries that have been hit hardest in the previous crisis tend to be the countries that got most money, the most money. So, in this regard, the Recovery and Resilience Facility should not exacerbate a further divide within Europe. On the other hand, it all depends in the end whether these programs are successful depends on whether the money is spent wisely and the money is has effect towards economic transformation economic development and that again depends on the capacities to absorb this money to have good projects for the private economy to sort of conduct these and implement these projects and there are a lot of sort of unknowns and uncertainties as to whether the money will be spent effectively and will be spent according to the goals namely resilience and and transformation and reform and so the jury is out and the jury will be out for quite a while on this but i think the And that seems to be a general understanding also in the in the policymaking community is that the initial reflections and initial ideas that went into the recovery and resilience facility give some reason for hope thank you when when making these plans in the long term
0: do you see that policymakers either At the national and European level, are they taking into consideration, you know, the impact of these measures on future generations? The reason why I'm asking this is that we see, and we also discussed this in previous episodes, that young people have virtually no political leverage, at least very little political leverage, because they are very often not represented. In political parties, their voting age might exclude a big portion of them, or in general, are either either have less access and less knowledge or are less interested in understanding exactly how you know this mechanism works. So do you think that policymakers are paying attention to the priorities of young and future generations, or not really?
1: I, I think policymakers are starting to take more note of young generations, and particularly under this header of intergenerational equity, that has been an issue that has come more to the fore, in my view, in the past two to three years, particularly when it comes to the green transition. So why do we do the green transition? Why do we want to decarbonize our economy? Because we we don't want the planet to sort of boil up, but policymakers now won't necessarily notice it and won't experience it. So that is definitely with a view to future generations. But I agree with you that the voice of future generations or the voice of the young has generally been underrepresented. If you look at the electorates, just sort of basic representative democracy in many of the member states, the, the average voter is actually Not very young. So in a way, some of the political measures that you see and that you look at and you think it's very short-termist is, if you take it sort of the very tough and hard line, it is representative or is in the interest of a large proportion of the voters in a sort of narrow self-interest perspective. So demographics don't necessarily work for the young generation when it comes to voting and you mentioned also that young people tend to generally go less to the polls than than older generation so there is definitely already in the in the electorate there is a skew uh, it's skewed to the current state of affairs if you want that doesn't mean that older people and policymakers that are middle aged or 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 older like me, that they can't take into consideration what happens to future generations and what happens to our planet. Do you think that the
0: policies that are implemented, designed, and successfully achieve goals, in this case, that support the young people, but they can be, you know, targeted at particular, you know, at any kind of group, usually translate with higher level of support for, in this case, the European Union. Or in general, for the yeah the policymaking body,
1: that would be great. But I think that's not in a way that's probably too easy of a relationship, because it's actually very difficult to observe what happens at what level, who's responsible for what, what causes what. So this this would be a classic way of saying we're providing a good, we're providing a service, and then And people then support us. But particularly with the European level, there's so many levels of policymaking that it is very difficult to discern of who's sort of providing this good in the end. So I think in the hope that these policies stabilize the economic outlook and provide opportunities and, and chances for people increase in support will generally follow but the relationship won't be as easily or the the link between sort of your policy and direct support for those who provide this or who decide on this policy will most likely not be that straightforward
0: yeah i would probably a populist conclusion even this kind of consideration i mean very simplistic and the reason why I asked this was in you know, order to add nuance to the prompt that we launched to the participants of this year's competition. We are Future You. We run a competition that is compelling students and researchers of universities in the Civic Alliance to come up with policy proposals that would increase the relevance of, of, of youth in European policymaking. But it's always important to maintain nuance. Because to increase the role of youth, you know, youth in European policymaking is a little bit like saying everything and nothing. If I were to ask you these questions and let's say if I were to give you this
1: prompt, what would you what would you be your considerations? I don't have a specific idea and I think it's super interesting to see what the, what the visions and ideas of, of, of your competitors or the people who enter your competition, will have, but I think what I can say is that the cost of non-action in certain ways, I think, can be a powerful tool to understand the implications of policymaking today. Mm-hmm. And particularly when we look at the the green transition and we look at measures and and policies, I'm always struck how much the conversation is around the costs of doing it right now, as opposed to really putting into the center of the conversation what the costs, particularly for the young generation, are of not doing it. And I think that's sort of a role that doesn't necessarily have to be played by young people. It can also be represented by, by anybody, basically. But... A greater focus on the cost of non-action, I think, would be very much in the interest of the young generation. That doesn't necessarily answer your question of where whether young can have a sort of greater access. Um, I think we live in a, de, a representative democracy uh, and there is this institutional sort of way and paths that, that policymakers, politi- elected politicians have to take and it's probably more difficult for young people to enter it, but I think sort of talking differently about some of the policies and some of the non-policies or the the non-action would already be a first step towards taking future generations into greater account. It doesn't answer your question, I know, but it's <laughs> it
0: it's... doesn't, but it's actually a great. A great way to think about it, because me personally, it's not a way that I frame the discussion up until now. So it's actually, it's a very important remark because it adds a lot of perspective. So it's again, it's a way you know to adjust the thinking. I still have one question, and the question is more personal. It's more directed to you, so feel free to answer however you like. When did you enter the labor market? How
1: was that for you? I think I entered the topic. Quite young already, as a young person, I was involved in in a youth parliament, and so I sort of entered the debate, if you want, much earlier than I entered the the, the paying labour market on this on these topics. But when I entered it after my masters, I was in my early twenties, and it was not easy at all. I can tell you that, and that was just before the euro crisis, a little bit before the euro crisis, and. I realized firsthand that the first step into the labor market is not an easy one. I entered the well, I tried to enter the German labor market which was very much closed off. It felt I was sort of considered to be too young, but what I can say to people who are trying to enter the labor market now is persevere and something will come up, but there there are some straightforward ways into the labor market. That might not be the most exciting ones and the ones that are exciting can be a little bit more difficult and not linear. Thank you so much because you gave me, I'm sure, whoever
0: is listening, a lot of yeah, perspective, way to think about problems to frames, to frame problems and to consider, you know, dynamics that I did not necessarily that I might have overlooked before. If someone would like to look you up, how can or get in touch with you? How
1: can he or she do that? I can be found on LinkedIn. That would be one way. And the other way is you can follow me on Twitter. You can also find my email address online. So if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me.
0: This was The Visionary. If you liked this episode, feel free to reach out to us on our website or social media to share comments and suggestions. We really appreciate them. Then, make sure to follow us to never miss a new episode. Till the next time!